let me just tell you that God is just, and that means every sin will be punished. God will either punish Christ for that sin and forgive the unrepentant sinner, or He'll punish the sinner, but God's justice will be done in every single case. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How does a society decline to the point of cultural decay? Is there a specific sin that initiates the process, or is the decline itself the evidence of judgment? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 16 of Trending Versus Truth, where he has explored the biblical response to various moral issues that are trending, including gender, sexuality, morality, and social justice issues. Today, Tom will look at the root sin issues that cause much of the conflict and injustice in society. You'll be reminded that the only solution to the issues of human sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that the work of Christ is sufficient to cover all sin? Have you repented and believed? Let's join Tom Pennington now for more on The Word Unleashed. Now, let's come to the U.S., to U.S. history. I think you understand the first two settlements, European settlements on this continent, were characterized by different priorities. The first was in Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. Its chief priority was economic. The second was in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620, and the primary point of Plymouth was the pursuit of religious freedom. Sadly, however, both settlements and their streams accepted and practiced the biblical sin of slavery. Original source documents show that by 1662, slavery was recognized in the statutory law of the Jamestown colony. In 1641, the Massachusetts Bay Colony adopted laws that made slavery legal in the cases of prisoners seized in just war, those who sold themselves into slavery. Both of those are commented on in the Old Testament and were allowed, although strictly regulated. But they sadly also made it justifiably legal to own slaves purchased from other places. And that's how American slavery really took its foothold. Let's fast forward to 1776, the year in which our country was, was birthed. All 13 states that entered America at that point allowed slavery. But during and immediately following the revolution, several states passed laws outlawing it. And all the northern states had legally abolished slavery by 1805 although the actual freeing of slaves was more gradual. Congress banned the import trade of slaves in 1808, but of course smuggling was common and continued, and it still allowed for those slaves who were here and their offspring to be kept enslaved. In 1860, a government census was taken that clarifies the state of slavery in the U.S. just before the Civil War. At that time, just before the Civil War, there were 15 slave states and 20 free states. The total U.S. population was 31 million, with 4 million of them being slaves. 
The percent of U.S. households with slaves was 13%, but that, that's a bit of a, of a misleading number because remember, there were 20 of the states in which there were no slaves, no slaves allowed or reported. If you take the slaveholding states in slave state, in slave states, the percent of households with slaves was 26%. And when you take the far south states, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, the percent of slaves to total population was 49%. On January 1st, 1863, as you know, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It stated that all persons held as slaves within the succeeding states are, quote, are and henceforth shall be free, end quote. Of course, it was in the right direction, but as I think you may know, it exempted the loyal border states and portions of the South that had already been captured by the Union armies. Then came the 13th Amendment, ratified in December of 1865, which ended chattel slavery any place under U.S. jurisdiction. But then came Reconstruction. And I think you understand that during Reconstruction, former slaveholding states instituted what came to be called the Jim Crow Laws. Here's how the Encyclopedia Britannica describes them. From the late 1870s, southern state legislatures passed laws requiring the separation of whites from persons of color. It was codified on local and state levels, and most famously with the separate but equal decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. That continued until 1954. In 1954, the Supreme Court declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional, reversing Plessy in Brown versus the Board of Education. By extension, that ruling was applied to other public places and facilities, and Jim Crow laws began to be dismantled. I can tell you, as a boy growing up in the South, in, in Mobile, Alabama, in the 60s, I witnessed firsthand the fruit of nearly 100 years of Jim Crow laws and the separate but equal doctrine. And of course, as you know, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed, a comprehensive legislation intended to end discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin. Now that is a thumbnail sketch of slavery in America. Let me just make some appropriate conclusions based on that little historical sketch. First of all, we need to acknowledge that slavery by kidnapping and prejudice are undeniably a tragic part of our nation's history. Secondly, we need to acknowledge that at different points in our nation's history and in different places in our country, racism has in fact been systemic. Now, I would argue that has only been true when it was intentionally written into and supported by specific laws, as was true under legalized slavery and the Jim Crow laws. But I reject the CRT idea that racism can be systemic unintentionally or that individuals can be guilty of racism simply by being in the majority or having a certain color of skin. Thirdly, we need to acknowledge that the U.S. has made significant progress, as one author in the Wall Street Journal put it, quote, in its long and torturous journey to realize its promise and abide by its founding principles, end quote. 
Number four, we need to acknowledge that the sin of slavery continues to have lasting effects on subsequent generations. And then finally, we need to acknowledge that the biblical sins of prejudice and partiality are still prevalent in the hearts of many individuals in our country, both those in the majority and those in various minorities, because it's part of the fallen human heart. And that brings me to the second sin, not only the sin of slavery, but the sin of racism. Now, I am not talking about CRT's definition of racism, but rather the definition in Webster's, it's when you believe your own race is superior and has the right to rule others. Now, where does that kind of racism, which is endemic to the fallen human heart, where does that come from? What are the biblical sins that are involved in that label that we use? The word racism is not in the Bible, obviously, but the concepts, the sins involved would be these. First of all, partiality and prejudice. Partiality and prejudice. Turn to James chapter 2. James, as he issues a series of tests of people's faith, includes this as one of those tests of faith. I don't have time to walk through this in the detail it deserves. Go back and listen to the messages I preached on this when I was working through James. But just look at the context of the first three verses. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, understand this. He is dealing both with favoritism and its opposite, which is prejudice. He's dealing with treating a person partially, either for good or for bad, based on external factors. And here's the specific factor in the early church. Verse 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James is saying it's wrong. It's wrong to look at external factors, in this case, how a person's dressed or their socioeconomic standing, and to treat them either better or worse because of those external factors. On the one side, it's partiality. On the other side, it's prejudice. And both are equally wrong. He goes on down in verse 8 to say, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. There's the solution. Just love everybody regardless of those external differences. Treat them equally. Verse 9, but if you show partiality or prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It's sin. Now, I think we are tempted to think that that sort of judgment we make in our hearts about other people based on external factors like, like race or their prosperity level, the car they drive, the neighborhood they live in, etc., we are tempted to think that's a little thing. It's not a little thing. Look at the next verse. Maybe you don't know this is the context of this verse. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, you could keep God's law perfectly your entire life, but if you allow this sin in your heart, 
Even once where you look at someone and based solely on external factors, you arrive at a conclusion where you treat them better because of those external issues or you treat them worse because of those external issues, it's sin. And you shattered God's law. Why? Because you're not loving that person as yourself. You just failed the standard. That's partiality or prejudice. We must never show it toward anyone based solely on external factors. It's a sin against God. And let me just say this, contrary to CRT, you can show prejudice or partiality regardless of what group you're in, whether you're in the majority or the minority. Often this sin of partiality and prejudice is combined with another to make it even more virulent, and that's hatred. Unregenerate people are hated and hate one another. This is just how the fallen human heart is prone. Every one of us, apart from Christ, has been guilty of this. But it is not a sin, brothers and sisters, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can tolerate in our hearts. According to James 2, if you practice these sins, you have shattered God's law to love others as you love yourself. Racism. We need to deal with it. I love what Daryl Harrison, who works out at Grace to You, says. He says, you don't end racism, you repent of it. A third sin that has contributed to our current mess is the sin of anger, bitterness, and violence. The sins of anger, bitterness, and violence. Many who champion the social justice movement and CRT, they do so because hateful individuals have committed terrible sins against either them and or their people. And historically, many of those sins have been horrific. And this is where we fall back on the, on the character of God. Let me just tell you that God is just, and that means every sin will be punished. God will either punish Christ for that sin and forgive the unrepentant sinner, or he'll punish the sinner. But God's justice will be done in every single case. However, listen carefully, God never permits the person who has been wronged, however horrifically, to hold a grudge, or to take revenge. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the divine standard. Sinful anger and bitterness are sins before God, even when they are prompted by the sins of others. Ephesians 4.31 and 32, Let all bitterness and and wrath and anger, and by the way, wrath and anger are two different nuances. One is blowing up, anger in the form of blowing up. The other is anger and clamming up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that word just means yelling, and slander, that's not like legal slander, that's name calling. Let all bitterness and blowing up and clamming up and yelling and name-calling be put away from you along with all malice. That's a vicious disposition where you just want to hurt the other person. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. God never justifies sin even when it's in response to the sin of others. But sadly, that is the spirit that drives much of the social justice movement. So, what does the Bible say? The real problem is sin. Secondly, briefly, the right goal is justice. 
The right goal is justice. Why? Because it's our God's character. Our God is unwaveringly committed to justice without prejudice. Psalm 89 verse 14, justice is the foundation of your throne, O God. In other words, God, God's entire rule is based on justice. He loves justice. He hates injustice. And in the exercise of his perfect justice, our God, listen to this, never shows prejudice or partiality to anyone. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter says, God is not one to show partiality. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.17 says, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear. God never treats anyone differently for good or for bad because of mere external factors like we are so tempted and prone to do. And since he's our father, we should be equally committed to justice without prejudice. Again, I'm not talking about CRT's version of justice. I'm talking about true biblical justice. We looked at that a little bit last time. It's what theologians would call, first of all, distributive justice. We should be committed to justice in our laws and in their enforcement. And we should be committed, secondly, to communicative justice. That's how all of us are supposed to be, treating all people fairly and with respect since they're made in the image of God. We must root out the sins of partiality, prejudice, and hatred from our own hearts. Folks, we should be equally committed to justice for all, regardless of the color of their skin or the color of their uniform. God doesn't treat people differently because of race, occupation, or their group identity. In the same way, we should never make sweeping verdicts about any group, good or bad. We must also insist that our leaders practice justice without partiality. This was a big deal to God in Old Testament Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 to 20, listen to this. And, and especially listen to this if you are in government or in law enforcement. But for all of us, understand this is a priority. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, end quote. When a crime is committed, whether by a citizen or a law enforcement officer, they should be prosecuted fairly, equally, in keeping with the law. We should also insist on laws that ensure equal and fair treatment before the law. The Dallas statement on social justice makes this point. It says, quote, believers can and should utilize all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on the laws of a society. So the real problem is sin. The real goal is biblical justice. A third point of biblical correction is the only real solution is the gospel. The only real solution is the gospel. Folks, we must seek justice. But in a fallen world, we will never root out prejudice and hatred. Only a change of a person's heart can do that. That means the only lasting cure for racism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul here, beginning in verse 11, talks about Jews and Gentiles and what's happened through the work of Jesus Christ. Now think about this for a moment. 
Jews and Gentiles could not have been more different. They were different in every conceivable way, not only ethnically, but also culturally, religiously, and the list could go on. They were poles apart. And yet what happened? In Jesus Christ, he brought them together. For he, verse 14, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Verse 15 goes on to say, so that he could make the two, Jews and Gentiles, into one new man. That's the church, thus establishing peace. Listen, Jesus Christ is the only one who can grant us peace with God, and he's the only one through his gospel that can grant us true and lasting peace with the people around us. If your relationships are in shambles, Jesus Christ is the only one that can help you fix that. He is our peace, not only with God, but he's the one who brings peace between us and others through his life-changing gospel. By God's sovereign plan in the church, there are people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We see just a little taste of that here in our church, but someday we're going to gather around the throne of God and we're going to see it in ultra-high definition. This is the only real lasting solution so we must show, not only show the love of Christ, we must not only pursue as much as we're able, reasonable justice to be done in our world, but folks, let's concentrate on the assignment we've been given, which is the only lasting change, and that is the gospel. The fourth point of biblical correction is the only perfect ruler is Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 42, we encounter the very first of what are called the servant songs. There are four servant songs in Isaiah talking about the Messiah. This is the first one, Isaiah 42, and he focuses a good bit on what Christ would do in his first coming. But in the middle of that, he shifts and talk, talks about what Christ will do one day when he establishes his kingdom on this planet. Listen to Isaiah 42, 3 and 4. He, the Messiah, our Lord, will faithfully bring forth justice he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, meaning the continents all over this planet, will wait expectantly for his law. That's the only time on this planet there will be true justice. And he will bring it. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You know, we should do what we can. We've talked about that. But understand that the injustice in this fallen world, and there always will be, there always will be to some extent in our country. Just face that reality. As long as they're fallen people, that's what's in the heart. But the injustice in this fallen world should make us long for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ when there will be only perfect justice. Don't buy into every new idea that comes sweeping across America or sweeping through the church. Be committed to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Come back and say, what does the Bible teach and what have Christians believed and championed and made their priorities for 2,000 years? And make that what you aim for and not keeping up with what's trending. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled Trending Versus Truth. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. 
But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, friend, if you've been with us over the last number of programs as we've addressed these trending issues and how they stand contrary to the truth, I hope you're walking away with two major takeaways. The first is that we need to pursue the truth of God in the Word of God. When it comes to the issues of our times, we need to think biblically, not culturally. We need to say, what does the Bible say? That's always the first question for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And I hope the second thing that you've been left with is to realize that the human solutions to these problems are always band-aids on cancer. The real help and hope comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the change of hearts that then manifest that changed heart in how we live. I hope you embrace those truths with me as we finish this time of study together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.